Amen. If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up with me to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23. We're going to be reading verses 20 through 33 in just a few moments. The question of what is God's will for your life is one that is asked often among believers and always has been. It's a topic that will sell many books and write many Bible studies. We all want to know what God's will, what His plan, what His purpose for our life is. If we care about God, we want to know what He calls us to do with the short time that we have on earth. You might be searching for God's will for your life even today, this morning. And I have good news. I intend on answering your questions so you need not buy any other books about it moving forward. And I'm going to try to answer it from the Bible. And this is the answer. God's will for your life is for you to engage in a holy war, to take up arms and put enemies to death. Now that language is stark, and it makes some of us uncomfortable. And if it makes you a little uncomfortable to talk about living for the Lord in that way, then you're exactly where I want you to be, and this is why. Because one of the reasons today that the church in our country, and in the, in the Western world, is often so passionless about God, so often ignores God's clear commands, and so often makes church about our preferences and socializing, is because we are living with a peacetime mentality when according to the Bible we are really at war. 1 Peter 5 says that Satan prowls like a lion to devour our faith. 2 Corinthians 4 says that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Our world and our experience and the Bible tells us that fallen mankind is raging against God and trying to make its own rules and going our own way. And even inside of us, our sin nature is raging against, fighting against the Spirit of God. There are unseen forces of evil and spiritual warfare that goes on each and every day in our lives, fighting for our souls and fighting for our world oftentimes unbeknownst to us. But we don't think about these things because we can't see them with our eyes. And because we can't see the spiritual war that is constantly raging around us, we live as if we are at peace. And we tell people who get too serious about living for the Lord, everything in moderation, just calm down because we can't see the spiritual war that's going on around us, we often lack any urgency or passion to fight for the Lord, to kill sin in our lives, 
to pray with desperation for God to work and move, to speak truth in a fallen world, or to protect the church. We don't understand war and spiritual war because we can't see it. But Israel, they understood what it meant to live lives of holy war. Because Israel's life had been marked by being in bondage to a physical world superpower, the Egyptians. Enemies had enslaved them during their entire existence. And then once they were finally set free, enemies occupied the land that God had promised to give to them. God showed up, God fought for them, God promised that He would go with them and He would empower them, but He called them to take up arms and fight. And as we get this morning to the end of Exodus 23, we read about this call to war that God gave to Israel. Let's read this together, Exodus 23. Verses 20 through 33. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey His voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and He will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which will drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you you until you have increased and possess the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will Surely be a snare to you. God calls Israel to a holy war. To take up arms and to go into the promised land. To take what God has given 
to them. They are called to this holy war and so are we. And as we reflect on this calling that God has given Israel and us to live lives of holy war, it's important for us to note exactly what we mean. Specifically, what it is that's the same about Israel and us, what it is that's different about Israel and us, and what is similar about the calling God has given to us both. So this morning, I want to outline this sermon with with those three points. The first being this, the New Testament church and Old Testament Israel have first the same Savior. The same Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice what God says about the angel of the Lord that will lead them. God says that His angel will guard and bring them to the land. He says that they are to pay careful attention to obeying this angel's voice. They are not to rebel against this angel. Why? For He will not pardon your transgression. For my name is in Him. This is an extremely interesting description of a created angelic being. Because the Bible says only God can forgive sin. But this text implies that this angel can. The Lord Yahweh's name, he says, is in this angel. Meaning God, the Lord Yahweh's authority and character is represented by and bound up in this angel of the Lord. Something said of no other angel anywhere else in the Bible. God says to Israel that this angel will win the victory for them and they are to give their obedience and their allegiance to Him, something that God worshipers are only supposed to give to who? To God. In fact, if you go back and you carefully read through the book of Exodus, you'll find that back in Exodus 3, verses 2 and 3, when God comes down in the burning bush, the actual language says that the angel of the Lord came down in the burning bush. In Exodus 12, when the Passover is about to happen, Exodus 12, 12 says that the Lord Yahweh, God, will pass through the land of Egypt and strike the firstborns. But then 21 verses later in Exodus 12, 23, it says the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer or the angel of death to enter your houses to strike you. In Exodus 14, verse 19, the cloud that has been leading Israel by day and by night is described as the angel of God who comes down in the pillar of cloud to block the Egyptians at the Red Sea. So from the very beginning of Exodus, when God shows up to Moses, and then as He leads the people of Israel out of their bondage, this angel of Yahweh, angel of the Lord, has been leading them with an authority that seems equal to God. He's distinct from God because God talks about Him as if it is a different person, a different being than Him, but... This angel does things that only God does. So the question is, is this just an angel? Or is it possible, as many commentators have speculated, that this is in fact God the Son? 
Before He has come down in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, this is God the Son, the pre-incarnate God of Son, coming down to fight as the leader of the Lord's army for His people to accomplish His salvation. Now, at the end of the day, to affirm that, we have to veer off into speculation. We don't know that for sure, but what we do know, when we read the story of Israel, the story of this angel of the Lord, and how God brings the people of Israel into the land under Joshua, is that when Jesus does come, when God the Son does take on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus follows the footsteps of this angel of the Lord, of Joshua, and of the people of Israel. And He follows their footsteps, how? By going into an enemy territory and declaring war. Now you might think, what are you talking about? Let me explain. With the help of God's angel, Joshua, the successor of Moses, is going to lead Israel into the wilderness, out of the wilderness, across the Jordan River, heading west, and they're going to go and conquer the promised land, fighting the battle of Jericho and Ai and all these other ones, dispelling the Canaanites, or at least the majority of them, from the land. But what happens once Joshua leads them into the land and they split up the land among the tribes? What happens is, is they still have hearts that are far from God. They continue to live in their sin until eventually the covenant that they've made with God at Mount Sinai, God decides they've broken it enough that He will now hold them accountable to it. And eventually, He's going to bring down the curses and judgments of that covenant upon them because their hearts are still far from Him. Why are their hearts still far from Him? Why do they continue in their sin? Why do they continue in their idolatry even after God has saved them and then led them into the promised land? Because while their physical enemies had been defeated... The enemies behind their enemies. The enemies underneath their physical enemies had not been conquered. Their hearts were far from God. Judgment still lingered over them because of their sin. And Israel, the descendants of Abraham, were powerless to defeat the enemy behind their enemies. Israel was called God's son. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God related as a father to His Son, the people of Israel. But this Israel, God's Son, was unable to keep this covenant. They were unable to dwell in God's presence. They were unable to be a holy priesthood and a light to the nations. Which meant that in the future, God would send another Son, a greater Son, His own eternal Son. God the Son had eternally existed. He is the one who created and sustained the world. He had eternal fellowship with His Father. Some even argue that throughout the Old Testament, God the Son, before He had taken on flesh, was coming down in the glory cloud as the angel of the Lord to lead Israel as the head of the Lord's army. Explaining why this divine language can be attributed to an angel in Exodus 23. Now that's speculation, but this is what we do know. 
God the Son did come down and take on flesh to identify with sinful humanity so that He could fulfill the mission that Adam had failed to keep in the garden and Israel had failed to keep in the promised land. Both Adam and Israel gave in to Satan's temptation whenever Satan drew near to them and tempted But Jesus, God the Son, came and never sinned. When Jesus began His ministry, He intentionally followed the path that Israel had taken to prove that He was the true Israel. He was the fulfillment of Israel. And He was God's true Son. What did Israel do? In the Old Testament, they were baptized in the Red Sea. And then they went out to the wilderness and were tempted for 40 years before eventually they were led and crossed the Jordan River heading west to go engage in a holy war. But Israel broke their covenant and did not stay long in the land and did not fulfill God's mission for them. So Jesus comes in history 2,000 years ago to do what Adam failed to do in the garden, what Israel failed to do in Canaan. Jesus came and was what? Baptized by John the Baptist, just as Israel had been baptized in the Red Sea. Jesus came and He went into the wilderness to be tempted for how long? Forty days. To represent represent the 40 years that Israel spent wandering in the wilderness of sin. But Jesus overcame Satan, unlike Adam and unlike Israel. How? By standing on the Word of God and keeping the covenant that Israel failed to keep. And as the perfect covenant keeper, Jesus, like Israel, crossed the Jordan River to enter into the Promised Land, just like Israel had under Joshua. But this new and better Joshua came not to defeat Jericho and the Canaanites in physical battle, but instead he came proclaiming that the kingdom of God had finally come, that the king was among them, calling the lost, calling those in bondage to freedom, to pardon, to faith, and to power. When Jesus arrived in his ministry and began to proclaim that the kingdom of God is here, he met resistance and he defeated demons and death and disease, but his eyes were fixed on an even greater greater enemy, the enemy behind the enemies, the enemies of sin and death and hell and Satan. And through Jesus' sinless life and His sacrificial death and His glorious resurrection, Jesus made war on the God of this world. He made war on our death sentence and He made war on our sinful nature. And the war that He fought, He won. The perfect covenant keeper earned God's blessing but chose to come and take upon himself the curse of the covenant in the place of covenant breakers like you and I so that we could be set free, so that we could be blessed, so that we could have an eternal inheritance in the promised land of heaven with God forever. Jesus is the greater angel of the Lord. He is the greater Joshua who leads the people in holy war and he is the greater Israel who comes to defeat the greater enemy. It's all about Jesus. And it always has been. And what that means is this. We, the New Testament church and Old Testament Israel have the same Savior. But there's something different about us. And this difference makes all the difference. 
Secondly, we see that the New Testament church and Old Testament Israel have a different agreement with God. A different agreement with God. What we call the New Covenant. See, this is the problem with the law that we've been preaching through week after week and month after month is Israel's covenant with God is dependent on their obedience. If Israel obeys God, they will be blessed. But if they disobey God, they will be cursed. If they obey God's angel, they're told that this angel will be an enemy to their enemy and an adversary to their adversaries. If they obey God, they're told that God will blot out the idol-worshiping, child-sacrificing Canaanites from the land. If they obey God, they're told that their enemies will fear them and run from them. If they obey God, they're told that God will establish their borders of their land little by little. If they obey God, God will bless their nourishment and their health and their fertility, even giving them long lives. But the blessing is dependent on their obedience to God. The Canaanites who occupy the land are evil, but so are the Israelites who are going in to take the land. Israel is supposed to be a holy people, a light to the nations. But you can't be distinct and you can't be a light to the nations if you look just like the nations. i got to keep going. But side note, that's why the New Testament church can't look like the world. Because when we do, we lose our prophetic witness. Okay, got to keep going. The people of Israel are no better spiritually than the Canaanites. But they are called to be a holy people and a light to the nations. And if the Canaanites are still in the land, if they are still worshiping idols, if they are still running after the things of this world, they will influence the Israelites to come alongside them in worshiping other gods. And that's why God says that Israel must utterly overthrow them. Israel must break their pillars in pieces. God wants no remnants of their sin and idolatry to be left among His people. So He says, don't rebel in verse 21. He says, don't bow down to and serve their gods or do as they do in verse 24. He says, don't make a covenant with them and their gods in verse 32. Don't let them dwell in your land lest they make you sin against Me in verse 33. If Israel serves the Canaanites' gods, if Israel, God's people, live lives that look like the Canaanites, then they will break the covenant they've made with God and they will face the judgment of a holy God. God had promised their forefather Abraham that He would make them a great family. He would multiply them massively. He would give them a land to live in. He would bless them. He would stand against their enemies. And He would use them as a blessing to the nations. But then, after Abraham's family grows and they're saved from their bondage in Egypt and they arrive at Mount Sinai, God says that for them to stay in this promised land, for them to experience the presence and blessing of God, they have to obey Him. And that's the rub, they can't obey Him. They do not have hearts that have been circumcised. They do not have hearts that have been transformed by the power of the Gospel to truly love God supremely. They don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them to remind them of how faithful God is, to convict them of their sin. 
They don't have the Holy Spirit to empower them to be holy. So the Sinai covenant, all these laws we're reading, are giving good laws to Israel that they lack the power to keep. And that's where Israel's story and our story diverge. Because we are part of a new and better covenant. Israel was God's people based on their bloodline, based on their genealogy, based on being descendants of Abraham. But those in the new covenant are God's people based on their faith in the promises of God through Jesus Christ, based on their experience of being reborn and regenerated, based on their experience of having the Holy Spirit living inside of and dwelling in them as a temple of God. It's not about our bloodline. It's not about what mama and daddy believe. It's not about my great-grandpa was a preacher. It's not about how long you've been a Baptist. It's about do you believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ and has He transformed your life and changed you from the inside out so you're a new creation. That is the new covenant. That is what marks God's new covenant people apart. Jeremiah 31, famous Old Testament prophetic passage that looks forward to this new covenant, said that this new covenant would come and that God's new covenant people in the future would not be a mixed community of believers and unbelievers. Israel was a mixed community of believers and unbelievers. All of Israel were descendants of Abraham, but not all of Israel loved God with their heart. Not all of Israel trusted in the promises of God by faith. Jeremiah 31 says this new people in the future, this new covenant will be different. So that new covenant believers are called to obey God, but they are also empowered to obey God. And because God's given them a new heart, they desire to obey God. But this is what's so beautiful about the new covenant, is not only does God give us the power to obey Him with transformed hearts and renewed minds, but also... In the new covenant, our standing with God is not dependent on our obedience. Our forgiveness before God, our ability to dwell with Him is based on something far better than our faithfulness and our obedience to Him. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, the perfect covenant keeper. Because of His perfect life, because of His sacrificial death and His resurrection as our covenant keeper, we can have confidence that we are right with God, that we will receive a not guilty verdict, that we can't lose our salvation. That's good news. And friends, when God has chosen you and Jesus has died for you and the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of you, then you can believe with confidence that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. When you're one of God's people, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Trials and tribulations can't. Persecution and danger can't. Temptation and doubts can't. Bad days and imperfection can't. Spiritually dry seasons can't separate us from the love of God. Sins of your past that you think are unforgivable can't separate you from the love of God. Brokenness in your family, past and present, can't 
cannot separate you from the love of God. And those sins that just won't die cannot separate you from the love of God because nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus because your standing with God is not dependent on how faithful you are to Him or how obedient you are to Him. It's dependent on Jesus, our Savior's faithfulness and finished work. That helps us rest. That helps us live a life where we can exhale. (sighs) Jesus has got me. Jesus is holding me. Jesus is sustaining me. God is pleased with me. God loves me. Because I'm hidden in Christ. Because of Jesus' perfect faithfulness. We will not be sent into exile. If you are one of God's people who've been born again by the Spirit of God and are a part of this new covenant, have put your faith in the finished work of Christ, you will not go to hell. You will not face God's judgment because His judgments are even poured out on Jesus in your place as your substitute. We are loved by God because we are hidden in Christ. Because we are forgiven in Christ. Because we are made holy in Christ. Because we are sustained by Christ. And because we are empowered by Christ. And that means that God loves you no more or no less on your best days or on your worst days because God's love for you is not based on your performance and on how well you are obey His laws. His love for you is based on His love for His Son, Jesus, who is perfect. And that means that the blessing and the inheritance and the forgiveness and the empowerment and the eternal life, those are ours, but not because of us, because of Jesus. Hallelujah. That's the Gospel. So unlike Israel who was under this old covenant where their blessing would be dependent upon their obedience and their faithfulness to God in the new covenant, God not only comes down and forgives us our sins and gets inside of us with the Spirit and changes our hearts to empower us so we want to obey Him, but our relationship with Him is not dependent upon our obedience to Him. And that helps us to rest. We have a new and better covenant because we have a different agreement with God than Old Testament Israel did. That's the second truth. This is the last one. So if you're thinking, Amen. Free in Christ means I can do what I want and ignore His commands. No, 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 no. If that's what you're thinking, then you don't understand the new covenant. Because not only is our relationship with God not dependent upon our obedience with God, but part of the new covenant is that God has changed you so that you love Him supremely. And if you, if you love Him supremely, and He's changed your heart, and He's renewed your mind, and He's created a new life in you, and you're a new creation, then your life's going to be different. You're going to want to obey Him. So third truth. The New Testament church and Old Testament Israel have a similar calling. And this leads back to where we started. A similar calling of living lives of holy war. God saved Israel from their bondage in Egypt. But He didn't just save them from something. He saved them for something. He saved them 
to be holy. He saved them to dwell with Him. He saved them to be a light. God told Israel to set their eyes on the promised land. God promised Israel He would get them to the promised land. But in order to get there, and in order to stay there, they would need God to go with them. So God made this covenant. He called them to obey. He made a way through blood sacrifices in the tabernacle for a holy God to dwell amongst His unholy people. God saves His people from their bondage. He defeats their greatest enemy. He promises them to get them to the promised land. But getting there, listen to this, it's going to take time. And it's going to take effort. And it's going to take trust. And it's going to take obedience. Getting there would require Israel to engage in holy war. And I hope you know that's not just Israel's story, that's our story too. Because believers in Jesus Christ have been saved from the penalty of their sin through Jesus' shed blood. They've been saved from the power of their sin by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Through their repentance and faith in Jesus, the penalty and power of their sin have been paid and broken. And we've been promised that God is going to be with us forever in heaven, in eternity. That's our inheritance. But when we believe in Him, we don't immediately get transported to heaven, do we? No! There's a gap between our salvation and our future glory. There's a gap between our justification and our future inheritance. And that gap is what we call the Christian life. And that gap is where we try to cling to God's Word and do what God calls us to do. God has saved us. And He promises to sustain us and be with us. And He promises to empower us on the journey. But we will have to take time to get there. It will require effort and trust and obedience. It takes a life of holy war. We don't fight holy wars to be saved. We fight holy wars because we are saved. Just think about it. In Exodus 23, Israel has already been delivered from their greatest enemy, the Egyptians. God has already conquered their greatest enemy. But then God calls them next to take the land of Canaan, which was going to require many small battles to be fought on their way to experiencing God's blessing and promise for them. And in the same way, our greatest enemy of death has been conquered at the cross of Calvary, but God calls us to strive towards the promised land of heaven by waging war against other lesser enemies like sin and like self like our flesh and like idolatry, like the world. We have to fight against those things with the power of God because we're justified in Christ in order to live the life God has called us to live, to practice and prepare ourselves for eternity where the fullness of God's promises will be ours. We've got to put in 
sanctified, spirit-empowered effort every day to put sin to death, to be holy, to be conformed to the image of Jesus, to renew our mind after God's Word, to live on mission, to save souls, and to disciple others. We've got to trust in and lean on God, but we also must obey God and be faithful to God and keep our hand on the plow. The angel of the Lord was going to go before Israel. He was going to make their enemies flee, but the people of Israel had to pick up their swords and fight. God will win the battle through our empowered effort. That's what He did for Israel and that's what He does for us. We must trust Him and obey Him. God will win the battle. He will fulfill His purposes through our efforts and through our faithfulness. I often hear people say, just got to let go and let God. And, and, and listen, I, that can be a, an act of faith. Whenever you find yourself facing trials and obstacles that are outside of your control and there's, there's literally nothing you can do, all you can do is trust in God. So if, if what you mean by that is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let go and let God, I'm going to stop trying and start trusting because this is out of my hands and only God can do this or that. Like I get that, that's an act of faith, but that doesn't work in sanctification. It doesn't. That doesn't work in sanctification. It doesn't work in the pursuit of holiness. You know what? I can't defeat this sin, so I'm just going to let go and let God. No. God's going to help you defeat the sin by you doing something. By you being empowered by His Spirit to use the weapons that He's given you. You can't say... Oh God, just save this soul. Oh God, just mature this saint. Oh God, just grow our church. Oh God, I've said my prayers. And not go out and talk to anyone about Jesus. That's not how it works. Right? God calls us to trust Him and to obey Him. And the life of holy war that you're called to, if you're here this morning and you're a born-again believer is He wants you to be holy and He wants you to be a disciple maker. God wants you to be holy. He wants you to quit lusting. He wants you to quit being proud. He wants you to have self-control. He wants you to stop caring about worldly pursuits that have no eternal significance more than you care about Him. God wants you to quit neglecting the church, to stop being selfish, to stop living for money, to quit living your life in constant worry. God wants you to stop with angry outbursts, to flee temptation instead of flirting with it. God wants you to stop overlooking the needs of your neighbor and a million other things. But if your battle plan to pursue holiness, if your battle plan to wage a holy war against your sin is merely to say, Oh God, change me. Without getting to work by using the weapons He's given you of His Word and His Spirit and His people, then you will not see victory over that sin and you are not really pursuing holiness. The same thing goes for living on mission. He calls us to be a disciple maker. He calls us to share the gospel, not just with our lives, but also with our actual words. 
He calls us to go to people who do not know Jesus or who are pretending that they know Jesus in a life-transforming way and to open up our mouths in love and in boldness to proclaim the gospel to them because if they don't hear that gospel and if they don't respond to that gospel, then they will face His judgment forever. That is God's call on your life, not just on missionaries who go to India or Africa. That's His call on every believer's life to not only be holy but to be a disciple-maker. He wants us to take a risk to speak the truth, to seek to be a soul winner. He wants us to invest in others, to help them grow up in godliness. He wants us to teach other people how to depend on Him and be led by the Spirit. But if our battle plan for reaching the world and being a disciple maker is just to say, oh God, save them, but we're also not willing to go out and be bold and have that gospel conversation and get into the Word of God with somebody, then we will never be a disciple maker. God is going to bring His purposes about. God is going to win the victory. Only God can save a soul, but He's going to do it through us. Because we are His mouthpiece. We are His missionaries. Kelly and I have been at Galleon for three years and a month. And by God's grace, during our time here, I've consistently seen many in our congregation who have a hunger to know God more. I've seen many in our congregation. You just look at people who, who plug in to week, week in and week out reading the Bible together in Sunday school. Man. Side note, don't neglect Sunday school. You know what happens when I talk to someone who's a church planner, who's trying to be hip and cool and start a new church and they don't do Sunday school? They always say, none of our people know the Bible. I wish we did Sunday school. When you see people for three years who are just faithfully consistent and involved in a Sunday school ministry or in a Sunday night discipleship class that, where women are teaching women or where we're studying theology or doing a prayer group or you're doing a verse-by-verse Hebrew study or whatever it looks like. When you see that, you see this hunger for the Lord and you see people growing in their knowledge of Him and it gets you excited. And then it, it causes me, though, to pause and to ask this question about myself. Are we as a church as passionate about being holy and putting sin to death in our lives as we are about learning more about God? Are we as burdened for the souls that are lost in our community as we are committed to learning more about God? We desire, I desire as a pastor to help others grow spiritually. And if you're a believer here this morning, my prayer is is that you desire that as well. We desire to grow spiritually. We even desire to see people that are lost come to faith in Christ. We desire to see more people growing and loving Jesus because He is ultimately satisfying. But who among us is waking up every day on a holy war to put sin to death in our lives. How many of us are waking up every day with a missionary mentality to go and be a light and share the gospel with those that God has placed in our lives? 
What sin right now are you actively, intentionally seeking to put to death? Who have you shared the gospel with or invited to church or read the Bible with that doesn't know the Lord in the last week or month or year or three years or ever? Friends, there is a time for us to pray for God to change us. And there is a time for us to pray for the lost to be saved. But God wants us to pray and then to act. God wants us to pray that God will help us to be holy and put that sin to death. And then He wants us to do something about it to dwell on His Word, to get accountability, to live life with other believers, to memorize Scripture, to replace that sin with righteousness. He doesn't want us to just say, God, make me holy and not do anything. That's not obedience. He doesn't just want us to pray about someone getting saved and never go and take the Gospel to them. If we will be holy, if we will reach our community with the Gospel, it will start with us acknowledging we can do nothing without God and praying for Him not just to do the work, but to do the work through our imperfect but Spirit-filled efforts. Because that is how God works. Praying to be holy without taking steps to be holy is not obedience. Praying for the lost without engaging the lost with the gospel is not obedience. Just like trusting that God will win you the victory without picking up your sword and fighting for Israel would not be obedient. It is misunderstanding how God works. God works through us. So we must lean on and depend on and be empowered by Him. And then we must go. And we must act. And we must be faithful. Friends, there is a spiritual war going on right now. Right now. You might not think there is. You might be thinking, Mr. G sounds good. But there's a spiritual war right now. Will you believe that God calls you to be holy and He's given you the resources to be holy and that there are spiritual enemies alive and at well and, and, and working that don't want you to be holy? Do you believe that? Satan is prowling around like a lion. The God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers. Satan wants to use the world and the flesh and a million other things to draw your attention and your affection away from God and away from submitting to Him. But this is the thing, and I want, I want you to hear this. this. This matters. Write it down. Tune in for a minute. Listen to this. Israel lacked the power to obey God. But we have the power because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. We are not in bondage. And we've got to believe that and we've got to act on that because God's Spirit says that we have the power to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. We've got to believe that. We cannot live our lives content, deflated, saying I can't change. Poor old me, I can't do it. And at least God still loves me. God does still love you. But He wants better than you for you to live in defeat. He wants better than for you than for you to constantly be content with living unholy lives. 
He wants us to believe that the gospel is powerful enough to change us from the inside out. And if we believe that because we're born again by the Spirit, then He will make us holy. He will make us want to pursue holiness. He will make us live on mission. And we will be missionaries in our community. And pray, we pray that God will use our holiness and our missional lives to reach our community and to see gospel growth. That is what New Covenant, Spirit-filled, Jesus-exalted believers do. We're not called to go kill anybody. That's not the kind of holy war that God calls us to. We're not called to fight physical battles like Israel. We're called to put sin to death in our lives and to be a light to our world. And God has given us the resources. God has given us the power. Jesus, our King, says, go and make disciples and I will be with you. He is with us. His Spirit is in us. He will win the victory. He can save a soul. He can produce a harvest. But we must take up arms and obey because He will do it through us. And I pray... that you'll join me in waging that holy war. I pray that today will be the first day of that new battle that you'll start to put that sin to death in your life. That today will be your commissioning service. The first day of being a missionary in Galleon, Alabama. Not to earn God's favor, but because we have it. I pray that because of all that God has done for us, because our salvation is secure, because our bondage is broken, because the Lord goes before us, that we will trust Him and obey Him. Let's pray together. Father God, You are so amazing and gracious and marvelous. God, we deserve no grace, but you have showered us with grace. God, you are holy, transcendent. You are unchangeable. You are good and pure and righteous and holy. And I praise you right now that you have made a way through Jesus for us to live with You, dwell with You, be empowered by You, be forgiven by You, live at peace with You. I praise You for those Gospel promises. And I pray, God, that You will help me and the people here this morning who know You, God, to take up arms by Your power because of Your work for us to live holy lives. To live on mission. God, there are lost people in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our community. There are people who don't know the Lord that we all know. There are people that we all know who, who God say that they know Jesus, 
But there's no evidence that anything has ever changed in them. There's no evidence that they're living with Jesus as King. And God, You call us to be the missionary. You call us to go and take a risk and open our mouth and share our faith. You call us to live holy lives that are different from the world. And we need Your power, but we also need to act. So God, I pray this morning that You'll help me and help us to trust You and to obey You. I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Will you stand together?